0: You bow your heads with me in prayer this morning. Our Lord, this morning as we come and gather as we have heard from your word, we ask for your help to understand your word. We in our hearts and our minds, we desire control and we desire power and we think too highly of our wisdom. And so help us today loosen our grip and take our gaze off of ourselves. Would you, O God, give us eyes to see Jesus? Would you give us ears to hear what is true and to put away that which is false? Uh, Give us help this morning to be able to understand your word and um, illuminate it for us in surprising ways that we might be encouraged to believe it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I, uh, without shame, have an addiction to watching courtroom dramas, um, whether it's Law and Order SVU or if it's Johnny Cochran's brilliance with the OJ, I literally watched from the beginning this past year, started to watch the OJ trial, right? I mean, the, the drama in that, the, the, the things that come up, and even Judge Judy, you turn that on, I'm all in. I've got a, I've got a bag of popcorn and a Coke, and I'm set. I love this stuff. And I think what makes these kinds of scenes, these kinds of proceedings interesting for us, most of us have this curiosity with this. It's because we want to find out if the bad guy is actually the bad guy. Right? We want to find out if these 12 people who have one person's fate in their hands will actually get it right and whether or not they will be served justice. Uh, last year, a series, a documentary series came out called Making a Murderer. Uh, Perhaps some of you guys have watched this, and yes, I was glued to the television screen for about two weeks as I watched every episode, and yes, I was the most unproductive in my life for those two weeks, because all I did, all I did with my time was watch this series that grabbed my attention. I just wanted to find out what would happen. And so if you've not watched this series yet, uh, Making a Murderer is is centered around this character, this man, a a real man who's been sentenced... uh, Charged with murder for the murder of a woman who was uh, killed in 2005. That's what the story is centered around. And so as this series continues, as the story is told, there are several questions that come up in your mind, not the least of which is: Is this man Stephen Avery? Is he being framed? Is there a conspiracy against this man to get him killed? Because as you come to find out, not everything has always been peachy keen between Avery and the sheriff's department, right? As you watch the trial and as you watch the circumstances surrounding it, whatever verdict you actually land on, you can at least admit that everything does not seem right about this. In fact, there's one Newsweek magazine writer who's written this about this trial. What is all too clear is that the compulsion to get a conviction as opposed to pursuing the truth overwhelmed this homicide case almost immediately shadows of doubt have are cast over the judge the the prosecution the, the witnesses and even the people who are defending Avery you don't you don't know what their pursuit is what their motives are and so Avery's innocence or guilt is not our concern here today but what a story like this does for us, what stories like courtroom dramas do for us, is it makes us wonder and ask questions about justice and about punishment and about innocence and wrongdoing. What this does is it makes us think about things that when, when a criminal, for example, receives judgment that he deserves, right, when he's sentenced to something that he's actually done and charged with that, we consider that justice. Or, on the flip side, when an innocent man is exonerated and freed and doesn't have to pay a penalty for the crime that he did not commit, that's justice as well. But, what happens when the heinous and vile criminal is set free? Or, when the innocent man is tried and charged and sentenced? Would you delight, for example, if an innocent man... A blameless man who's done nothing wrong. were to pay the penalty for someone else. This is crime. Someone that something has been done, nothing to do with that person. Would you delight in that? We we are mortified when we even hear of men and women who have been on death row and sentenced only to find out later that they've done nothing wrong. So friends, this morning, we're going to recount the story of the most innocent of all. Jesus. Undergoing the trial of his life. Indeed, a trial for his life. Even further, a trial for my life. And a trial for your life. It's a trial where we'll also wonder, is there a conspiracy at play? Is this a pure trial? This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, as Anu has read for us. Mark 14, 53, 65. It's on... Page 851 of the Bible is in front of you guys. You can pick a Bible. If you, if you don't have one, take it home with you. It's our gift to you. We're going to be in this text today. And as we read through this trial of Jesus, you're going to wonder, how has this happened? Right? How has this happened? Why is Jesus, of all people, on trial? And I think as we see this scene, we might be quick to judge those who are judging Jesus. But do not be quick to absolve yourself as innocent. Instead of puffing us up with pride, I think what this text is going to do is it's going to bring us to great humility. And what Mark wants us to hear this morning is this. This is the big idea of this text for us. That the divine judge is undeservedly sentenced to death by sinners so that sinners might undeservedly be spared death By the divine judge. I'll say that again. That the divine judge is undeservedly sentenced to death by sinners. So that sinners, you and I, might undeservedly be spared death by the divine judge. So let's turn to Mark 14. Starting at 53, we'll be in this scene. And we're following a scene that we preached on last week. What happened last week? We saw Jesus... Betrayed, arrested by the chief priests, scribes, and elders. And the nail in the coffin is this, that not only was he betrayed by one man, but all who followed him, the 12 disciples, whom he walked with for three plus years, we said, have all betrayed him. They, they fled, they, they left. And in verse 54, you'll briefly see one of the disciples, Peter. You'll see Peter mentioned, but this story, this account today, this text for us today is not centered around Peter. It's actually as if the camera is sort of panning around. You see Peter in the corner, and then it centers squarely on Jesus. So Peter is here. Mark almost wants you to know that Peter's here. He hasn't completely left Jesus yet. He's staying warm by the fire, and we'll come back to him later. And so verses 53 and 54 reads like this. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. Okay, so between these three verses, we know the location we know the players of who are here, the people who are present, and we also know why they are there. Where does this take place? It takes place at the villa of the high priest, the home of the high priest, and we know from another gospel that his name is Caiaphas. And who's there? Who else is there? The rulers, the Sanhedrin, the people who rule the Jewish life and the Jewish synagogue, the people who are in charge of their Jewish religion, they are also there. And why are they there? To put Jesus on trial so that he might be killed. That's their reason, that's their pursuit. And I want you to notice this about this pursuit. They already have the verdict, guilty. They already have the sentence, death. What's missing? The charge. I'm not a lawyer. But I'm pretty sure that's not the way you go about a trial. Right? You don't go into a courtroom and say, Your Honor, we have this man. He's guilty and we're going to sentence him. We, we are pursuing a death sentence. Okay, what's the charge? Your Honor, we have not gotten that far yet. And that's what they're saying. That's what we come confronted with today. This is no ordinary trial this is no pursuit for justice this trial is a sham from the beginning and there's nothing right about it sure there's some some of the optics are familiar to us right it's sort of like our supreme court you have these people sitting in a semicircle in this type of a setting and they're sitting elevated as well so they can see each other and you have one seat in the middle of the room for the defendant and one seat in the middle of the room for the witnesses that will come up but that ends pretty much what's normal about this trial Because what's odd, for starters, they're holding the trial in the living room of the high priest, not in formal chambers. Later in in this text, we'll hear of the garment of the high priest, what the high priest is wearing. And it literally, in the Greek, says that he's wearing a nightshirt. What's the implication? This guy, the high priest, is coming out in his PJs into his living room to conduct this trial. What else? It's past midnight. And it's the week of Passover. It's a Jewish festival. The Mishnah, the Jewish law, forbids you conducting a trial like this past midnight during the week of a festival like this. And so we'll see over and over again in this trial, nearly every detail of this is a sham. It's it's rigged, right? Because from the beginning, from the beginning of Mark, we've actually seen, as soon as Jesus came on the scene, these religious leaders hate him and they want to see him dead. They're offended at him, they're threatened by him. One of the other requirements for a trial like this when you're seeking a capital punishment in Jewish law is that you need two witnesses. You need two witnesses to come together because there is actually no official prosecutor. All of the testimony, all of what you decide in this trial is based on the testimony of two witnesses. And these two witnesses, they could not be different in their in their testifying. They could not have two different stories. They needed to agree on what they said, otherwise it's thrown out. In fact, it's grounds for the trial to be thrown out. And so reading from verse 55 Over and over again, the text sort of emphasizes this, this is not equaling out. There's, there's something off about this. And, and so you even hear in the text that these people, they're searching for witnesses, someone to be able to corroborate and to affirm what they are seeking to do. And so they construct a charge that they need to agree upon and corroborate. And what is that charge? Jesus is a self-proclaimed terrorist. That's what they're saying because Jesus is going to destroy the temple. That's what they're saying he's going to do, right? And, and that's, a, that's a major jaw-dropping statement to make because the temple for the Jewish people is at the heart of their entire religion. That's where you worship. That's where the power structure is. That's, that's where your heart, that's where the, the heart of the religion is. And this is saying, these witnesses are saying that Jesus has said that I will destroy it and that I will raise it up in three days. Listen, our perspective on This building, it's not as glamorous as the temple, you know, that that Jerusalem and the Jewish people are used to, but even still, it's not as sacred, but even still, if a street preacher came off of Welsh and came in here and said, listen, my first order of business is to destroy this. Some of us might be glad because we'll get insurance money, and we might be able to make... I heard that Brett was saying that it might not be a bad deal, but we would certainly pin that man down, call Homeland Security, and get the authorities to get him out of here. It's an astonishing claim for someone to make, much less a person like Jesus. And so the question that we ask is, did Jesus actually say this? Did these words actually come out of his mouth? And he'd be surprised, and perhaps you remember that the answer to that question is yes and no. Because if you remember back in Mark 12, here's what Jesus says about the temple. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. John's gospel gives us a clear picture of what Jesus said and what he meant. John 2.19 says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and the reality is a few years later, it is actually destroyed. But in the first place, Jesus does not say that he himself will be the one who destroys it with his hands. And in the second place, Jesus is talking about his body. That's that's what he meant. He's not intent on blowing up the temple. He's, He's no terrorist, but instead he's telling them this, listen, the temple has been beautiful and it has served a purpose wonderfully, But listen, it will no longer be at the center of your religion or your worship. I will be. So he's replacing that. And Jesus, don't don't get Jesus wrong. He's not mincing words. He doesn't make a mistake here. It's not as if, Jesus, why didn't you just be more clear about what you said so that they would understand? He intended what he said. He intended how he said it. There's nothing mistaken about Jesus' intent here. And each one that tries to nail him on this charge of destroying the temple could not do it. Testimony after testimony, contradicting one another. False witness after false witness with the only intent to condemn Jesus. Uh, But it makes you wonder, with all these false witnesses that have come, what if there was an honest witness that came? What if there were many honest witnesses that actually came who encountered Jesus? What if actual people who met Jesus and knew Jesus and encountered Jesus came to the witness stand to testify? One woman might say, listen, I'm here to witness. My son was dead. Jesus came to him, and now he's alive. And you'd imagine that these religious leaders... Are growing anxious, and they almost ignore her. And they say, anyone else? And she says, did you not hear me? My son, he's actually right here. He was dead, and he's raised to life. Son, would you say hello? And the the religious leaders growing anxious in their heart only to hear another person stand and say, I was Jairus' daughter, and I was dead. I too, though, met Jesus, and I was raised to life. And then another says, my name is Bartimaeus, and I was poor and blind, sitting at the city gates without any hope, and Jesus comes by me. He makes my eyes to have vision, and my life has been changed. And I was a paralytic dropped through the roof by my friends, so that I might meet Jesus, and when I did, I walked. Yet another, my name was Legion. And I was filled with the despair and torment, and my home was among the tombs. And I would spend day and night cutting myself in despair without any hope until Jesus came to me, and he freed me, and look at me now. And perhaps another, I was a deaf and mute man. And Jesus came to me, he touched my ear, and he touched my tongue. Would you hear me now? I speak, do you hear me? And another, I was a woman with the issue of blood, and I was was not loved, I was not wanted, I was ashamed, I had no integrity, I had no hope for healing, and I come to Jesus, I touch his garment, he looks me in the eye, calls me daughter, and I'm healed. Would you imagine what it would have been like if that room were full of witnesses who actually encountered Jesus? Jesus. Men and women who were actually lifted up out of their despair, out of their sickness, out of their hopelessness, given worth and meaning, forever changed because they encountered Jesus. Would the courtroom not marvel? Would every eye not be weeping with tears falling flat at Jesus' feet at this travesty of justice, marveling at who he actually is? Here at Seven Mile Road, Ask a Christian here, would we not be able to tell of addictions broken because we met Jesus? Would we not be able to say of marriages being restored? Would we here not be able to say that we have ourselves faced death or have faced death and encountered death with others, and yet we have found consolation in Christ Would we not be able to say that His firm grip has been on us, even through seasons of doubt and wandering away from Him, that over and over and over again, His mercy and His grace has been lavishly poured upon us despite our sins, and we are set free and forgiven? Would we not testify of this Christ? And should we not marvel at this Christ? But that's not what happens here In the living room of the high priest. Nothing of the sort. These men are not broken by their sins. They're not marveled by Jesus. Instead, they're puffed up with pride. And they are seething with anger in their hearts. And as the anger boils up, the pressure gets turned up. And the high priest becomes impatient and no longer is waiting for incredible witnesses to come forward and witness against Jesus. So what does he do? He cuts to the chase, and in verse 60, he says this to Jesus. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Jesus is silent. He says nothing. All of the accusations that have been hurled at him, they've all been false, so he doesn't dignify their false accusation, but he remains silent. But if you're listening, you'll you'll hear that his silence speaks volumes because what Jesus is actually doing here is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 53 that says of this Messiah, he says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so this is not some strategic move from Jesus to show his strength. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as he remains silent before this high priest. And you'd imagine that that silence even intensifies more the anger that is within his heart and within the the hearts of the people who are present here in this courtroom. And so in verse 61, the high priest asks him point blank, Are you the Christ? Are you the blessed? The son of the blessed? Is, Is that who you are? He asks that question, and a deafening silence fills the room. Not a muscle moving, not a pin drop. Everyone waiting to hear what Jesus' response will be. And Jesus says, I am. Jesus says, I am all that you have just said. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Listen, We've been in Mark for how many months now, right? We've, we've seen Jesus over and over again. When he encounters someone, when he heals someone, when he changes someone's life, what does he say to them? He says, don't say a word to anybody. Don't open your mouth and tell anybody. But now, hear Jesus profess himself who he is. His identity has been hidden and veiled and concealed. But now, the secret's done, right? The hour has come. The secret Messiah is no longer a secret. And commentators actually call this verse in Mark 14, 62, the the Christological climax of the gospel. Because here, we, we begin to realize who Jesus really is and himself professing it. And because he does that, everything turns. When the high priest Caiaphas asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed that's, that's a weighty question to ask. That, that word, blessed, is a roundabout way of the Jewish people saying, are you the Son of God? That's, that's, what, that's what the high priest is actually asking Jesus. But that question, though weighty, it's a weighty question, right, to be called the Son of God. Though that question is weighty, the Messiah, that's talking about the Messiah, the Messiah was actually just a mere man. It was a person that the, the Jewish people were waiting for to come and to free them from Roman oppression, but still... The Messiah is just a mere man. And so, because of that, there's more that Jesus says that actually shocks this crowd. In the next statement, Jesus affirms that he is the Messiah by saying, I am. Yes, that's true. But then he goes on to say, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man, what is that? Who is that? The Son of Man is this figure that we see in Daniel 7, coming from the throne of God, descending down to earth as judge, to judge the world, to judge us. That's who the Son of Man is. And so the Son of Man, this, this, this night in this courtroom, is Jesus himself saying, this is who I am. I'm not the, just the Messiah that you conceive me to be. I'm more than that. I am actually the Messiah divine. I'm the Messiah King. I'm the Messiah Judge. That's the Messiah that stands before you in this moment. And would you put yourself in the shoes of these people who are witnessing this? It's the mere absurdity of what Jesus is saying. For a Galilean preacher like him, a man who doesn't even have a home to rest his head, to say that he is the Messiah, that's one thing, right? Just to say that you're the Messiah, you can sort of chalk that up to him being a whack job. But for this Galilean preacher to call himself divine, not only that, the divine judge. One preacher put it this way, a God imprisoned, abandoned by his followers, delivered helpless into the hands of his foes, an impossible conception. And so the only thing that you can surmise is that this, this is blasphemy. And so when Jesus makes these claims, when he says these words, what he is doing is guaranteeing his execution. Because it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy unless it's true. Right? It's blasphemy unless it's true. Think of this. If what Jesus says is true, if he is who he says he is, it's not actually Jesus who's the blasphemer here. But it is the people who are calling him the blasphemer because if Jesus is who he says he is, the high priest is looking into the very face of the God that he claims to worship and he says, you are not God. What Jesus is saying when he says he's the Christ, the blessed one, the one of the son of man who is seated at the right hand of the power who will come again with clouds of heaven, what Jesus is saying to the high priest is this. Go ahead. Put me on trial. Condemn me. You can spit on me and mock me. You can pull out my beard. You can crucify me. You can drive those nails deep into my hands and feet. You can bury me. But know this. Though you are sitting on your throne, though you wear the robes of a judge, and I the tunic of but a peasant, I am the divine judge, and you are but a mere man. And yet here is Jesus, the divine judge, on trial. On trial in the court of sinful men. The irony of this, I mean you're astounded by it. If you remember, there's another place in the scriptures where God is on trial. Back in Exodus 17, the second book of the Bible, you hear of this story where the Israelites, right, they're in the wilderness. They fled uh, Egypt because they were in slavery, and God sends them, them out to the wilderness. And what happens? They get there, and they have no water. They're, 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 they're dying. They're, they have nothing in the desert now. And, and they're, they're wondering, did God just send us out here to die? And so what happens? They go to Moses, who's their leader, and they say to him, listen, your God, he, he's committed criminal negligence here. Listen, he's, he sent us out here to die. Who is this God that has sent us out here? And so they literally are about to stone Moses, and Moses goes to God and says, you have to do something. They're going to kill me if you don't do something. And so what happens? God says to Moses, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to assemble the people. I want you to go to this great rock, and I want you to bring with you your rod, symbolizing a trial, justice. And when you get there, I'm going to stand on that rock that you assemble around. And Moses is thinking, okay, I think I I know where this is going. The people who are complaining and groaning, groaning, they're going to get what they deserve. But then God tells Moses that he's going to stand on the rock and that he should take the rod and strike the rock. Moses, perplexed, does that. He strikes the rock on which God stands. And what happens? Water comes gushing out. And Moses is perplexed at what just happened. That these people groaned and murmured, and yet God is the one who stands on a rock and is struck. The late, great preacher, Ed Clowney, he has a sermon where he talks about this text in Exodus 17, and he does it by talking about this play that was written in Germany right after World War II when the Holocaust was finished. And it was written on on the heels of... The, the tragedy that's just happened and realizing that someone has to pay for this atrocity. Right? Someone has to pay for the crimes of, of, against humanity that have just happened. And so in this play, what happens is that they're looking for someone to put on trial. And so they first go to the common people and say, you should be put on trial for this. The common people say, no, look to the soldiers. They knew what was going on. The soldiers say, no, it was our superiors. You should get them. The superiors say, no, it was those people above us. And person after person, group after group, everyone gets soft because that person just blames the next person. And no one gets put on trial until in the play they say, we know how we'll get out of this. We'll put God on trial. He's the one who let this happen. He's the one that created the world into which this happened. And so we'll put God on trial, we'll find him guilty, and we'll sentence him. And here's what they say. Let him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty. And let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. They committed these horrific acts, and yet, who is put on trial? God. And Clowney says in this sermon, do you realize when they pass this sentence what they're doing? They're demanding God pay for their sins. How unjust. And yet, in perfect righteousness, God, in His grace, has done even more than the arrogance of our cursing demand. This scene at the Villa of the High Priest, where God incarnate is put on trial by sinful men, shows the undeserving, unrelenting, unbelievable lengths. To which God has gone to save you. To save me. And what you realize is that everything's reversed. What should happen doesn't happen. In this scene, here's what the reality is: as I heard one preacher say it this way: hear Jesus say this to you. I am judge. You should be on the dock, but I will stand in the dock for you. I am I am actually the divine judge, but And I will deal with your evil and I'll deal with your sin. But here's how I'm going to do that. I don't come to bring judgment. I come to bear it. I will not strike you with the rod, but I will receive that harsh stroke for you. I, who deserve to be free, will be condemned by justice. So that you, who deserve to be condemned by justice, will go free. And would you hear this? Did you hear Jesus say that, I could have defended myself. I could have just said the right words and defended myself and gotten out of this. But no, I did not defend myself so that I might defend you. I kept silent so that I might shout mercy over you. This is the reality of what is happening here. This is the truth of what Jesus is doing. Shouldn't they all marvel? But how did the high priest and these rulers respond? Verse 63 says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Listen, this is not only a travesty of justice, but this right here is a display of the dr- depravity of the human heart. Over and over again this week, perhaps even as you've studied this this week and studied it within your small groups. I've had to look at this scene and then turn away because the awfulness of of what's happening here, that God, the divine judge, the one who's perfect and innocent, would come down, show us mercy, and what we do in response is this. Condemn him. Look at the anger of these men. The, The high priest, so furious that he tears his garments. How does everyone else respond? It says that they all, condemned him to death. They are seething with so much rage that right in the middle of the trial, they couldn't even finish the trial. What happens? They all bull rush and they start beating him and spitting at him and they mock him. They blindfold him. They strike him. And what else does Mark tell us? It says that they tell him to prophesy. And in Luke's gospel, it gives us some more detail. He says that they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, But that that they also say, listen, if you're so clever, we're going to blindfold you. Would you tell us who's hitting you? If you're a prophet, oh great God, would you tell us who just struck you? In utter mockery, they look at God and say, prophesy. But in one of the irony of all ironies, what's actually happening here is that as they tell Jesus to prophesy, they unknowingly are a part of fulfilling prophecy. Would you know that? Because in Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says this. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. They ask for him to prophesy and look at the prophecy fulfilled. Listen, this scene is the most deplorable deplorable example of what we needed to be saved from and why Jesus needed to come. What this text should do for us is to look at the awfulness of what's happening here. It is the the prime example of why Jesus needed to come for their sins, for, for my sins, for your sins. This is what we have done to God. He's come to us and we've killed him. and We've condemned him. The very ones who put him on trial, though, are within view of God's mercy. Think about that. The high priest, the one who is actually condemning him, he's not without hope. It is for him that Jesus has come. And friends, would you hear that this is what God has done for us, that we have sinned awfully, and yet with love in Jesus' eyes, he has placed the rod in our hand so that we might not be struck. And so the question that we are confronted with this morning as we see this divine judge who has come for us, the question is, how will we respond to the divine judge who was put on trial and condemned to death for us? And as I said in the beginning, do not be quick to think that you might not have joined in on that day in condemning Jesus. Because do we not often take part in putting God in the dock and us on the judgment seat? I would venture to say that the reason many don't believe in Christ or maybe walk away from Christ is because you don't want, I don't want someone else looking into my life and saying, this is what life is, this is what you should pursue, this is what your life should be about. Because I am king, I'm the ruler, I am the judge and no one will take that seat but this morning, this text shows us that whatever throne that we think we're, we're seated on, it's an illusion. It's actually an illusion. That there is no throne that we sit on, though we think we are sitting on it. There is one judge. And if we continue trusting in this illusion, the one who is truly judged over us will judge justly for our sin, for our rebellion, for your sin, for your rebellion. And that would be eternally horrific. If we remain in this illusion that we are judge over our lives, we get to say what's right in the world and what's wrong in the world, and we push away Jesus, we condemn Jesus, it will be horrible for us because James 4.12 tells us there's only one lawgiver. There's only one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy So, James tells us that God is the divine judge can either mean destruction for us or it can mean salvation for us. Dear sinner, would you believe in Christ today so that Jesus would bear the awful judgment for your sins so that you do not have to? Would you believe in Christ today? This morning, you who know Christ and trust in Christ. Or trying to figure out Christ. Would you hear the good news of the gospel of the love of God in Christ for you? Would you embrace the good news of the gospel, that the sin that you've confessed to the Lord, even this morning as we, we have confessed together, that, that Jesus has actually paid the penalty for that? Would you believe that God is judge and that you don't have to judge yourself? That if you've confessed your sin, that God actually forgives you because Christ has paid the penalty for you? This frees us from judging ourselves inappropriately. It's not that we don't mourn over our sin. We mourn and we confess it and we trust that God has paid for them. Would you believe this morning your most awful act, your most heinous crime that God, the great judge of all, has deemed you innocent because he has paid the penalty? Believe that today. Hear these final words from one pastor and we'll close In our world, bad people get what's coming for them. There is no free lunch. There is a day of reckoning, and bad people are going to get bad stuff. But the gospel makes a radical claim. If you believe the gospel, God put the ledgers away and settled the accounts. The good news of the gospel is not that good people get good stuff. It's not that life is cyclical and that what goes around comes around. Rather, it's that bad get the best. The worst inherit the wealth. The criminal gets set free, and the slave becomes a son. Why? Because the best person in the world got the worst. The richest person broke the bank. The judge became judged, and the Son of God became sin for us. All for us. And this is good news. Sedma Road, would you hear again that the divine judge is undeservedly sentenced to death by sinners so that sinners like you and I might undeservedly be spared death by the divine judge. Let's pray.